Today's reading comes from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you'll open your Bibles with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. No one's awake. Try that again. Good morning. All right. Go get some coffee. Um, Glad you're here this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. We're going to jump right in. I don't know that there's another passage of Scripture in the entire Bible that does a better job of answering the question that this series is posing. Who am I? Then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You may think to yourself, that's a pretty simple question. Who am I? I think I know who I am, my address, where I live, those kinds of things. But it's a question that we struggle with, especially as followers of Jesus, as Christians. There's a twofold problem that comes in answering this question, who am I? Tim Keller has summed it up well. He has said it this way. We are far more sinful than we ever dared to believe. Far more sinful than we ever dared to believe. And at the same time, simultaneously, we are more loved and accepted by Jesus than we ever dared hope. And we're going to see that unpacked in this passage of Scripture today. Most Christians fail to understand the depths of either one of those truths. They were far more sinful than we ever dared believe, and yet simultaneously were far more loved and accepted than we ever dared hoped. And, and here's the problem with not understanding those two ideas. Understanding your story will determine the trajectory of your life. How you understand and how you interpret your story. In other words, how you tell your story will determine the trajectory of your life. 
Meet someone who sees themselves as a victim and you will understand the trajectory of where their life is headed. Meet someone who has overcome hardship but sees that God has brought them through it and that they are an overcomer and you will see the trajectory of where their life is headed. Whether we know it or not, our stories have an enormous amount of control over how we live our lives today for both good and for worse. And more importantly, they inform the kind of choices that we make for the future. And if that's true, then how important is it that we understand our spiritual stories, who we are in Jesus? And so today we're going to look at, again, the gospel story that we see Paul unpack here it's not, it's not a new story. You could say it's a tale as old as time. If you wanted to go down that route. And you, you could say that there is a beast. And here's the problem, folks. We don't hear this much. The beast is you and I. And this story is that Jesus comes to us in our beastliness. And there's nothing good about us. And he meets us in his beauty. And he creates a masterpiece. The big idea that we're going to unpack today is a question We're not really going to get to it until the end, but the question is this. How is Jesus calling you to step more fully into his story? How is Jesus calling you to step more fully into his story? We're going to get there. Three elements that Paul unpacks in these ten verses. Three elements in your story. First, we're going to see your brokenness. Secondly, your rescue. And third, your purpose. Your brokenness, your rescue, and your purpose. Let's look first at verses 1 through 3 at your brokenness. Paul begins and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Stop right there. He says we're dead. He doesn't mean it figuratively. It's a factual statement of everyone's spiritual condition outside of Christ. This is the universal human condition in which we are born into this world. Dead, spiritually. And a lot of people will try to see this in a figurative light. Or, or they'll try to make dead somehow smell better than it, than it really is. There's no way to make dead smell good. I don't know when the last time you were around something that's really been dead for a while. Andrew and I were running last week. We saw a possum on Tuesday morning. And then by Thursday morning, enough cars had run over that possum and enough sunlight had shone down on it that we, we smelled it and then we saw it and then we jumped over it. And, and that's what you do to something that's dead. You don't, you don't creep up to it and you don't say, let me see if I can make it smell better. Maybe it's not too dead. No, you turn away from it and that's what God does to us. He turns away from us. Because we're dead. That's what the writer is saying. And we're going to spend some time unpacking our deadness this morning. Aren't you glad you came? Because the truth of the gospel is this. If we don't understand the bad news, then the good news isn't really that good of news. And in a lot of churches that you'll walk in in America today, you'll never hear the good news because no one's willing to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is that we are dead. Paul makes that very clear. Isaiah 59.2 says it this way, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. 
That's our spiritual condition when we're born into this world. Paul's covering everything in verse 1. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. He's covering sins of commission, things we commit, and sins of, sins of omission, things that we just fail to do. Paul, Paul's covering it all. He's saying, you are dead. We're rebels and failures. That's how we're born in this world. That's what the gospel says. Now, look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm going to unpack that really quick. Verse 1 says we're dead. Verse 2 says we're enslaved. And we have three prison guards that keep us enslaved. Those prison guards are the world, the devil, and the passions of the flesh. If you want to know the, the way in which the world enslaves us, it's just the cultural worldview of our sinful race. It's all the things that we have come to accept as normal. David Wells says it this way, You can recognize the ways of this world wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. Wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. I would say that's the majority of the, of the television shows we watch. This cultural worldview enslaves us, but not just the world, but also the devil. Satan is active. He's at work in our world. And for the unbeliever, he holds them captive. And listen, it's only Jesus that can rescue them. I think we oftentimes think if we just share the gospel enough, if we just give the right resources, if we just have the right one-liners, that we can rescue people. No. People who are far from God, people who are unbelievers, they are enslaved to Satan. There's nothing we can say or do that can rescue them. Only Jesus can do that. He uses his church and he uses the presentation of the gospel and he uses us as we make disciples. But don't forget that only Jesus can truly rescue people. And so I think it's why he told his disciples to begin when he sent them out. He said, begin in prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. We have to begin in prayer because it's a spiritual battle. Because people are enslaved to the world and to the devil. And then if you go into verse 3, you'll see the passions of the flesh. Which is not just our physical bodies, but literally our human nature. Who we are. Uh, the, the part of us that loves self-glorification and self-indulgent attention-seeking and selfish luxury. We, we were on a trip the last couple of days celebrating Katie's big birthday. I'm not going to tell how old she is. How young she is. Um, it's her 40th birthday. And uh, we were celebrating, and we were in a very beautiful spot. And there was this huge waterfall behind us. And I just looked around at all the people who were just, I mean, it was silly. All the people who were taking selfies, like, we're just so amazed by ourselves and this big waterfall. And we're in the midst of God's beautiful creation. We are overcome with ourselves more than we are oftentimes by who he is and what he has done. And the passions of the flesh, this speaks to the triple bondage that we're under. The world, the devil, the passions of the flesh. We're unable to break free. And get this, believer, those who are enslaved to the world and to Satan and to the flesh, they don't want to break free. They find pleasure in those things. They see nothing wrong with it. And the gospel that we declare to them is foolishness. 
until God opens the eyes of their heart. He goes on in verse 3, and it gets worse, guys. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Underline that. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 3, he's saying not only are we dead, verse 1, and enslaved, verse 2, but now he's saying we're condemned. All of us, that's our nature, that's how we're born. Children of wrath. I know no way to make that a, a favorable term. Unless maybe you're a heavy metal or screamo band. Like, that would be a great name, right? We're children of wrath. Other than that, there's no good take on this. He is saying, look, he says, carrying out the desires of the body. So that's our, the actions What's external we see in the ways in which we sin against God. He goes on and he says, and the mind. So our attitudes, we sin in our attitudes toward God. That's when you look on social media and you're envious of people and you're jealous and you're selfish. You didn't do anything, but just in your attitude you can sin. And he goes on and he says, and we're by nature children of wrath. Nature, that points to Psalm 51.5. David said it this way. Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David understands that there was something about his nature that was turned against God. What theologians have come to describe as total depravity. And the reformers would say that this is one of the very first principles of the faith that we would come to understand that we in and of ourselves, total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. R.C. Sproul says it this way, but that every part of us has been infected by this, this nature of sin that was passed down to us from Adam. That we are by nature, Paul says, children of wrath. The Bible presents a picture of mankind that's far darker and more hideous and evil than we would ever dare to realize or even begin to imagine. And never, the Bible never speaks of us as sort of good or little bad. The Bible calls us children of wrath. Romans 14.23 says it this way. Paul writes, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What, what that means is even when someone who doesn't know Jesus goes out and does a good deed for someone. Even when they do that, there's sin in their heart because they begin to say, look what I did. Pat themselves on the back. Why aren't you not more like me? And even within their hearts and their good deeds, there's still sin that exists because they're not glorifying God, they're glorifying themselves. This is so important that we understand, and we spent 15 minutes on this point this morning in, in understanding how dead we are, because it's only good news if there's bad news. And I think we're living in a period in, in, in Christian history in which, even in our music, we want to be so much like the world and we want people who come into our, our church services to, to understand. And there's a, there's, a, there's a delicate balance in line that we walk. Because if, if, 
people who walk in are so understanding of what we're singing and what we're talking about, then there's the question of are they stepping into God's kingdom? Are we stepping into their kingdom? Do you see that balance and that tension? Like, I love that new hymn that Andrew introduced this morning because you got to understand some Old Testament for it to be meaningful. And I think that's, that's good in a sense because God's called us to be a part of his kingdom and his people. That's who we are as his church. Today in America, there's a therapeutic, moralistic kind of gospel that's preached that ultimately a lot of sermons end in this way. God helps those who help themselves. It's not that simple, but you listen through the principles and the values. If you do these things for your children, you will be a good parent and they will turn out well and God will help those who help themselves. That's not what the Bible declares. The Bible says that we were turned against God, that we were dead, we were enslaved, we are condemned, we're children of wrath. And we can't appreciate a great Savior until we see ourselves as great sinners. And so when someone says, who are you? It would be best for you to look them dead in the eyes and say, I am a great sinner. But Paul doesn't stop there. Praise the Lord. He goes on and he says in verses 4 through 6, that not only are we broken, but we're rescued. He says, but God. Two of the most amazing words in all the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Mercy is God. Not us not getting what we deserve. God's rich in mercy. Over and over again, we don't get what we deserve. In verses 5 and 6, he says, I'm going to blow through this, so just underline some words. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, underline, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up. Underline, raised us up with him and seated us. Underline that. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We've talked a lot about rescue already in Ephesians, in chapter 1. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. But we were dead. We were unable to solve our sin problem. We didn't even see it as a problem. And everything that God did for Jesus, he's done for us. He's made us alive through resurrection. He's raised us up through ascension. He seated us with him. We're enthroned with Jesus And so Paul is saying that we really sit in two positions, that we have two addresses today. And I've shared this example before, and I want to share it again because it's a great one. There's a, imagine a rich old gentleman who befriends a dirty, hungry, tattered street kid and eventually adopts the kid. The moment the judge declares custody and bangs his gavel on the desk, the legal status of the kid has changed. He is what now? He is son. He is adopted instantly. But old street habits die hard, don't they? And it takes time for the kid to live up to his new name, to manners and vocabulary. And in the same way, if we've made an active decision to trust in Jesus and follow him, we've been adopted. But we, in the same way, are slow in coming to know that legal status and what it really means and understanding who we are in Christ. God's given us his spirit and he's declared us justified. Um, that's a part of the Christian life. But we also walk in this life and we struggle. We struggle with our sin. That process of struggle and oftentimes failing 
and being convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's called sanctification. And there's a lot of Christians and a lot of churches who would even teach that we shouldn't struggle with sin. Some of you may have even doubted whether you're a follower of Jesus because of the enormous amount of sin that you have in your life and the enormous amount of struggle that you have. But Paul writes in another letter to the Colossians, he writes about this issue and he describes what he calls the old man or the old woman and the new man or the new woman. Before Christ was ruled and dominated by sin and, the self and who we are, ourselves. But he goes on, he says, because of our redemption, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we're dominated by Christ. And so we have these two addresses in which we, we struggle. We're justified and struggling in our earthly bodies. Yet at the same time, we are justified and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's what the scriptures declare. So a good example of this, you, you got a paper clip that's on your listening guide. If you still have it, take it out for a minute. Um, it's a good example of what we look like before Christ. This is our natural bent. Our natural bent was to sin. We were dominated and ruled by sin. And all that's changed in our lives. So go ahead and take your paper clip and, and try to straighten it out. Try to straighten it out completely. As you do that, our old self is gone. But no matter how much you try to straighten it, we still have this bent towards sin that we, that we can't overcome. And sanctification is God's process, if you will, of unbending us. Because we can approach straightness with a paperclip, but, but by its nature, it's been bent by a machine and we were born bent. And it's, it's very possible and even commanded that we straighten out. But we never get rid of the bent part completely. Like we approach straightness. But this side of heaven, we never get rid of it completely. We'll never completely overcome our old sinful nature. We'll never be perfect. And that's not discouraging news. That's not dis depressing news. That's not disturbing news. It's our safeguard. I realize that there's a couple people in the room who are going to walk up to me afterwards and say, look, I got it straight. And I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. I'm just going to go ahead now and say, if you put it under microscope, it wouldn't be straight. I don't want to see your paper clip, okay? <clears throat> but it's our safeguard that we come to realize that we are in need of a Savior, that we will continue to struggle with that old man, that old woman that's within us, reminds us of our deep need for Jesus. And, and it shows us that the gospel doesn't just save us. The gospel is not our ticket from hell to heaven, but the gospel is what is needed on a daily basis, that we would allow the gospel to mine the very depths of our hearts, that we would become more and more like Jesus. That we would see him and that we would display him to others. And that our desires would be to understand our past failings and our bent towards sin. To know the, the idols of our heart that we will continue to struggle with for the rest of our lives. And to see those more clearly and to offer those to Jesus in repentance and to continue turning away from them. So that the gospel would be the tool that continues to bring redemption into our life. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther would say that, that all of the Christian life would be that of repentance. 
Not just one day walking down an aisle. Not just one prayer. He said, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed that the whole life of a believer should be that of repentance. For what reason? And we finally see our purpose. It's in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. You can underline that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, salvation is a precious, precious gift. We can never do anything to earn it. The reformers would cry, sola fide, justification, by faith alone. And that must continue to be the cry of our hearts to the 21st century church, justification by faith alone, that we would continue to remember our sinfulness, how dead we were. And in understanding God's work in salvation, we can't quote verses 8 and 9, look back at them. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We can't quote verses 8 and 9 without linking them to verse 10. If we do, we'll run the risk of spreading cheap grace. Look at verse 10. This is going to be hard for some of you to believe. For we are his workmanship. In the Greek, it's the word poema. We're his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're broken. We've been rescued. But now God has a purpose for our lives. Do you really believe that all of your life can bring glory to God? All of your life? I think about the man who Jesus encountered, the blind man. And, and Jesus' disciples had a very simplistic understanding of sin. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus' response was, this man was born blind in order that the Son of Man may be glorified. In order that the Son of Man may be glorified. I want to tell you a secret today. God wants to use your greatest struggles. God wants to use your darkest trials. And God wants to use the greatest storms that you, were, you will encounter in your life in order to bring Him the greatest glory. We think that when we read this passage, that we are his workmanship, that we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. If, when you start drilling down in verse 10 and you start trying to understand what that means, we're tempted to say, well, then I want to look to my giftedness. I want to look to my strengths. I want to look to all the ways that God has made me to be wonderful. Because see, the, the word poema, the word masterpiece, it's where we get our word poem. So think of a masterpiece or a poem or, or a great play or a song. 
Or think of a tapestry or a quilt or stained glass. See, when we hear that God wants to use our lives as a masterpiece in order to put his glory on display, we're thinking about the front of it. We're thinking about what it looks like in all its glory. But what we don't understand is God's actually using the backside of that quilt or that tapestry. And when you turn it over, it looks like the biggest mess. It looks like you can't even tell what it is. All these strings that are hanging out and loose and the colors don't match. And that's what God's doing in our lives as he's using some of the greatest trials of our lives, some of the biggest storms, our weaknesses, all the parts of our life that we just say we're done with, the areas of our lives in which we say, why would God allow this to happen to me? And the answer is because he can receive such greater glory from our weakness than he can from our strength. The great apostle Paul pointed that out as he was confronted with it front and center in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Everybody gets so distracted by this thorn in the flesh passage. But Paul says, but he said to me, as he talks about his weakness and his struggle, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Where is God calling you today to join him in a greater way in his story? In your weakness? In the areas of your life where you struggle? Where you're in need of his grace? where you're even in need of his mercy and you don't deserve his forgiveness, but it's okay because he's rich in mercy, which means he's just going to continue to pour it out on his children because we're the beloved. Where's God calling you to step even deeper into his story in order that he would be glorified, in order that his name would be lifted up, in order that Jesus would be praised. I'm going to invite the band to come and they're going to lead us in, in a final song and there'll be a time where we can celebrate Jesus in communion. His table is here in the center because we desire for him to be the center of our lives. And each week as we come down and take the bread and tear it off, simple ordinary bread and dip it in simple ordinary juice and eat it, you can come down the center aisle and you can go back on the sides. As you do that, be reminded that in the simple, ordinary aspects of our life, in the struggles, in the trials, in the darkest nights of our lives, God wants to use Jesus in order to bring rescue and redemption. God wants us to trust him. God wants us to continue to follow him. And when you come up against doubt, may you be reminded that you are far more sinful than you could ever believe. And at the same time, simultaneously because of Jesus, you are far more loved than you could ever dare hope. Praise be to God for his glorious gift, Jesus Christ. Pray with me.
Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thanks for your story, for Jesus. God, thank you that your story continues, that your kingdom has come and your kingdom is coming. And God, you've called us to be a part of your glorious kingdom. God, may we, in the midst of our weakness and our struggle and our brokenness, trust that you are writing a story and that you are creating a masterpiece that is far more beautiful than what we could write on our own. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us with everlasting love. Thank you for your mercy. May we be reminded as we come to your table today of your mercy that you have lavished on us and that you lavish on us even in this moment as beloved sons and daughters of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. His table is